Is farming a job or a lifestyle? And if it is a lifestyle, what does it mean to retire from a lifestyle? Over half of Alberta's farm operators are 55 years or older, which technically means many agricultural producers in this province are nearing retirement age. That is if producers were the type of people to retire at 65. Whether you're 65 or 85, walking away from being an agriculture producer has got to be tough. It's an identity a lot of producers wear with pride. In this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're going to hear from one of those producers who's exiting from agriculture. He's also a bit of a giant in the Alberta agriculture community. His name is Don Rizika. Hi, I'm Derek Leahy, and welcome to the first of what I hope will be many installments of us hearing, recording, and capturing the wisdom of elders in the Alberta agriculture community. I'm not too sure if these folks are going to appreciate me calling them elders. I swear I really did try to find a different word, but I hope you can take it as a compliment because it's definitely meant to be one. Sunrise Farm in Killam is owned and operated by Marie and Don Rizika. I was lucky enough to travel out there last July, stayed the night, and recorded my conversation with Don. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get Marie on the podcast. Uh, She declined. She said, you know, Don does the public speaking, which Don is a really good public speaker. It would have been great to have her voice on the podcast too, though. She's got a lot of great ideas and thoughts about agriculture in the province. So instead, Marie just filled me up with dinner until my belly nearly burst, which was mainly my own fault because I keep forgetting I'm not 14 anymore. And then me and Don jumped in the pickup truck, headed to the back of his section of the land. He's got a little cabin back there, and that's where we chatted. I love that cabin. I've been there before. A lot of people have over the years. And this is where the, the weird connection with Rural Roots to Climate Solutions comes in. My first time at that cabin was in May 2017. It was part of um, the farm apprenticeship program I was in. I was in the Young Agrarians program at that time. It's one of the first times I met and hung out with Dana Penrice, who's now the Prairie Coordinator for Young Agrarians. Dana was the one who sent me this job posting from the Stetler Learning Center to run a climate and agriculture project. I've been running that project for two years now. But it does get weirder from there. About three years before I went to that cabin for the first time, Brenda Barrett, the person who started Rural Roots, the person who hired me, visited Sunrise Farm as part of her journey of getting back into farming, of getting into regenerative agriculture, both Dana and Brenda sit on the advisory committee of Rural Roots too. And the weirdness doesn't quite stop there either. Rajan Rathanavalu, founder of the Spirit of the Land Conference and Nuo Energy in Camrose, has had a connection with Sunrise Farm for years, and now Raj is the chair of a co-op attempting to purchase Marie and Don's farm. Nuo Energy is an organizational partner of our solar lab, and if you don't know what our solar lab does. The solar lab helps communities in rural Alberta develop their own community-owned solar projects. As far as I know, that's where all the weirdness stops. I do find it a little eerie that many of the key players in the work that Rural Roots to Climate Solutions does have some sort of connection with Sunrise Farm or a connection with Don and Marie. It makes me wonder if Sunrise Farm is just one of those places in the world that attracts good energy, or maybe the other way around. 
the good energy of the farm attracts people who are trying to do good things. Or, or maybe it's not the place at all. It's just Don and Marie. It does make me wonder as well if Marie and Don had not welcomed strangers like me, like Dana, like Brenda, like Raj into their home, onto their land, and made sure that when we left, we had full bellies and full hearts. Would Rural Roots be doing what it's doing right now? Would Rural Roots to Climate Solutions even exist? Don and Marie, if you're listening to this right now, I just want to say thank you. Sunrise Farm has been in Don's family for 104 years. Marie and Don bought the farm off Don's uncle in 1983, and it became a certified organic farm in 1996. From the sounds of it, the Rizikas pretty much have done everything on that farm. So cattle, hogs, layers, meat birds, bees, vegetables, and I think even crops at one point. They've got rid of most of that. Uh, They still have a veggie garden and they were custom grazing cattle when I was there. Why do they have so little going on on the farm right now? Marie and Don are looking to get out of farming. They farmed for over three decades and with their kids spread out all over the world and with a new grandchild in the Czech Republic, they've decided it's time for a change. It's time to retire from agriculture. And that's why I drove out to kill them to talk to them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not promoting retirement or selling the farm as a farm solution that is a climate solution. Donna Marie cared deeply for the land. If you go to their place, you'll notice they're really great land stewards. So I had to ask, after decades of just working so hard to regenerate, to restore the land, what's it like to walk away from that life mission? What else can I tell you about Don? He's as skinny as a rake, but he's still, you know, strong as an ox. His whole face just lights up when he smiles and he gets a bit of a twinkle in his eye. He's humble, he's super grateful, and he's very non-judgmental. And I recently discovered he's a bit of a writer too. I'm going to read you the introduction in a moment to his very small 22-paged unpublished farming guide or farm memoir called Sunrise Farm Thoughts About the Past, Present, and the Future. And then we'll get to the interview. But just before I read the introduction, just a couple things about the interview. The cabin we were recording in had a tin roof and it started to rain while we were recording. So some of the audio, it might be a little hard to hear. Also for some bizarre and kind of terrifying reason, every time Don mentioned Marie, so every time he said her name, thunder would rumble and lightning would flash. We told Marie about it afterwards and her reply was, I told you not to take my name in vain. Marie found a way to get into the interview after all. Sunrise Farm. Thoughts from the past, present, and about the future. Introduction. Many thoughts have come to mind as we prepare to leave Sunrise Farm. Parents quite often want their children to take over what they have done for a living for many years. We are no different. Since we began farming this grass-based agrarian model in 1996, We often thought of one or perhaps all of our children returning to farming this land someday. It has been with that thinking that we have attempted to build a farm that is resilient, sustainable, and where nature is respected and well cared for. At the same time, we encourage our children to cast their nets both near and far to find out what their vocations would be. 
whatever that evolved into, as long as they were happy, we were happy and would encourage them in their chosen vocation. They are all doing just that. Farming has not been their chosen path, so we move on with plan B. If our kids had chosen to farm, we were adamant that they would succeed and we are of the same mindset that future farmers will also succeed. Making a living growing and raising food has been a challenge for us ever since moving here in 1983. Those challenges are still clear and present and increasing, especially for small farmers. The biggest challenge that presented itself was how to make a living without overdrawing on the natural capital nature provides. The market economy depends on the nature economy, and if the nature economy begins to draw down, the market economy will not be far behind. The following story is not a roadmap of how this land has to be farmed, rather it is a path that we have taken and found that we were able to make a living and keep the nature economy healthy. We made many mistakes and we would not want those same mistakes repeated. People who will farm this land in the future will bring their own gifts and talents to work with nature to remain both viable and sustainable. We wish them all the very best. The farm has been managed holistically and certified organic since 1996. This way of farming the land has required a large amount of diligence and patience. To lose the organic status would take a minimum of three years to restore. Science is also beginning to suggest that chemical residues from herbicides and pesticides may be affecting the health of foods and could further delay restoring the organic status. One last thing that we emphasize is that the land has a spirit. It took us a while to figure this out. Once we did, we found that this spirit, if you care for and respect the land, can continually provide you with hope, strength, passion, and contentment. What does it feel like to try and get out of farming at this point in time? Uh, it's like uh, laying on the bed with a psychiatrist. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Guilt. Why? Well, uh, we've had a, a very good run here, and we want the farm to uh, be able to transition successfully to the next owners. And if that doesn't happen, the, the effort that so many people have blessed us with their knowledge and wisdom and passion, that it's almost like that was done for naught, eh? And so we've been left with the reins to that process to try and find the next group, family, individual, farmer, whoever that's going to take the farm over. So if that doesn't happen, I'm I'm going to have some issues dealing with that. And it, it will be guilt, even though Marie has told me, Don, we, we've done our best. We're doing our best to make the transition work. So it is what it is. But, you know, we're human. Mm. I'm human. Okay. And I, I've looked at the stages of grieving and uh, 
The one that I know that I have to get under my belt is the last one on the list for me, and that's bitterness. I don't want to be bitter with uh, driving by the farm Sunday and seeing the place absolutely trashed. Hmm. Because, again, so many people have invested their energy into this farm. Okay. And when you say so many people, you mean more than, like, the previous landowners and yourself? Oh, like, I'm, Who I, are all these people? I'm, I'm basically referring to when we moved here in 1983, Marie and our three kids – we farmed conventionally for 12 years, and it didn't work. Uh, I found that we got behind the second year and being able to make our, make our payment, and uh, I just thought we were behind the eight ball very quickly, and it just seemed to get worse and worse as we went along. And When we took the holistic management course in 1995-96, it kind of introduced us to we actually live in an ecosystem and it has parts and those parts, it's like a motor. If you're only, if you have a six cylinder vehicle and it's only operating on four cylinders, you don't have the power, you don't have the energy and you're going to have problems. Eh? It's going to be inefficient. And that's, that's a great metaphor for how we were farming. So it taught us that we live in an ecosystem, get to know it and go from there. So it just seems like, ah. Uh, I started going, showing up at a few workshops, and that's where we met the cows and fish people. Uh, Ducks Unlimited project here. After the project was done in 1992, uh, Tracy Scott showed up, and he said, "Well, I actually, said Tracy, what can I do? Because you guys just basically, you know, you, you built it. We didn't put anything into it." Mm. And he says, "Well, if you like, I'll come with. I'll come to your farm, and we'll walk the farm." So we walked over the whole farm, and he told me, "Well, you've got this." Trees here along the riparian area. Uh, you can actually, there's habitat here for upland game, and I love upland game. And he said, waterfall, perfect. So uh, Tracy invested a lot of time and patience in telling us what the value of wetlands were, cows and fish, the value of riparian areas. And in 1997, we fenced the creek off because when we took holistic management, we started realizing that we're getting into this land ethic that Aldo, Aldo Leopold talks about. And we have to take responsibility for the land. So I didn't know what riparian area meant, but I did know that our cows were, you know, uh, manure in the water, uh, urine in the water. And so I thought, well, let's do our part to clean it up. But hearing cows and fish presentation is the riparian area is, is it's about that, but it's also about keeping the cattle away from the edge of the creek so you have vegetation growing, so you have trees growing, so you have berry bushes growing, so that these are the hot spots for biodiversity. So spring, when the migration comes back, there's still berries in those areas that are dried on, rose hips are dried on. In the fall, when they head back south, there's the, the fresh berries that are starting to die and uh, we've been having bird surveys done here since 2004. And if you look at the data, this is a hotspot on our farm for increasing biodiversity. So, uh, and then we get into PFRA, Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration. Uh, we've been working with them on planting trees from the Shelter Belt program since 1984. And they've shown us how to, how to, uh, how to do our shelter belts, how to do wildlife habitat plantings, how to do eco-buffers. And they've come here and they've never criticized the fact that we took out a lot of native trees. Cows and fish never criticized us for overgrazing the riparian areas. Tracy Scott never said those wetlands that you trashed and tried to turn into grain land, you know what? They'll heal. And so 
there's a lot of people care about this farm and they care about us. So, uh, we got to give something back. And the more they gave us, the more we tried to give back. So the farm has been, has been the beneficiary and the community has been the beneficiary. And unfortunately, most of society thinks the community is the businesses down main street, the church groups, the volunteer groups, the watershed group, etc. But you know what? The homage, they got it figured out. Environment, nature, creation, uh, the land, it's part of the community. And so, the community is huge. So we have learned so much from people from away, and they've been so kind to us. Okay. And uh, when I first met you a couple of years ago and listened to you talk about the land and what you're doing here, I kind of had the impression a lot of the things that you chose to do uh, after you shifted away from uh, conventional agriculture, it was almost like you are motivated by guilt. I almost had the impression you felt like you were atoning for sins for what you'd done to the land of the past. I could be completely off base with that. Uh, is Are there you... a little bit of that or am I completely wrong? Were you carrying a microphone nah. <laughs> a tape recorder? Because you know what? I've said that. I've told many people, especially when we go across the wetland here and we look at the wildlife habitat plantings, people say, what is this? I said, well, the short answer is reparation for my sins. Mm. What are your sins? Well, that, there used to be a lek there for sharp-tailed grouse. And I, as a kid, grew up just across the section here. And on Saturday morning, my mom would say, okay, what do, we want, what do we want to have for supper on Sunday? Yeah. So you got pigeons, you got rough grouse, you got pheasants, you got prairie chicken. And I was the hunter in the, on the farm. And if mom said, well, I guess they want sharp-tails, so... I'd go out and bring home six, seven shark tails. And that was just like, they were everywhere. And I knew where they were. Life was good. And so when I decided that we needed more land to either have for grazing or for growing grain, that 17 acres, hey, it was it had a native prairie because it was across the creek. They, my, my uncles never even grazed it. So the native prairie was tall. You could hardly walk through it. If you fell down, you'd probably bounce back up. There was native trees. It was, it was a paradise. But I did not recognize paradise. So when I got rid of all that, and of course talking to uh, Tracy from Ducks, uh, Lauren Fitch, Noreen Ambrose, Carrie O'Shaughnessy, uh, uh, Kelsey, Spicer, Raw, all those people uh, said, you know, there, there's there's value around here. And I've, yeah, I did feel guilty, but they didn't make me feel guilty. They just told the story, the right side of the story. So, yeah, I, I did feel guilty. And uh, I we, we think that we've made reparation for my sins. I won't bring drag Marie into this because she was born and raised in the city. <laughs> I didn't lie. Lightning strikes as you say, Marie. Interesting. <laughs> so she's she's basically invested her trust, and hey, you grew up here, you know what to do. And well, a lot of other people are doing that, but I, I seem to be doing a little bit more. So uh, yeah, definitely guilt. And I've actually done a, I, I've written a, uh, a paper for myself personally that I can read, and it's being it's it's called being forgiven by the land, and I go through the process. And we lost the meadowlarks from the farm in 1989, and I didn't realize till we took holistic management that if you overgraze your native prairie, any prairie nesting birds they have no litter, so they can't nest. So western meadowlarks 
they eat grasshoppers. So if we get into a drought, hey, it's good to have somebody around that gets rid of the grasshoppers. Sprague's pipits, they eat grasshoppers. Bluebirds, they eat grasshoppers. So all of a sudden, hey, you got a whole bunch of uh, nature, uh, pieces of nature out there that want to work with you. And they're just saying, offer me your hand and we'll work together. And so we started doing that. And uh, yeah, and I, by the time the meadowlarks came back 11 years later, and I was moving the chicken shelters on the May long weekend, and I heard a meadowlark, I just thought, ah, can't be, eh? And I, I was, no, about five minutes later, I heard the most melodious meadowlark call that I hadn't heard in 11 years. And I said, they're back. And that's why when we had our gate sign done, we had a metal art put on the gate sign because every time, you know, as we get older, we lose our memory. And I don't want to lose the memory of what I had done to the land. So whenever Marie and I leave, we come back and we say, Every time you say Marie, oh, wow. I'm starting to get a little freaked out here. <laughs> so we see that metal art and it reminds me that, you know what, they're back and, and you have been forgiven. So the guilt is being erased. And it's interesting you know, like the Amish, when you start caring for it, uh, somehow or other you get blessed. And that has happened to us in spades. Okay. And then, I guess, like, with your plans with the land going forward, I feel like you have, like, a new motivation in your life. I think it's about 17 months old. He's about this tall. Apparently, he only knows how to walk backwards or yeah. something. I was just watching yeah. a video of him walking backwards, yeah. looking over yeah. his shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. So, what does it feel like having that new motivation? <clears throat> Well, it's one that came out of the blue because uh, we're living in the house that my some of my uncles were born in. My mom was born in the house, 1917, and my uncles were all bachelors until later in life one got married. And when people say, you know, your, your kids, none of them are married, what's going on? I said, it's in the walls. <laughs> or it's in the water, eh? And so... Uh, yeah, we never ever thought any of the kids would get married or, or have grandchildren. So Anne is over in the Czech Republic and, uh, you know, she's, they, they have a, we have a grandchild now. And yeah, he's 17 months old. And I read the book by Naomi Klein. I think it came out in about 2008, 2009. You can probably correct me, but it's called This Changes Everything. And I, I, I thought I'll read this book over a month. I think I read it in three, three, three evenings. And, uh, I, I put it back on the shelf, and I still think about it. And when uh, Anna sent us a picture the day the baby was born, I looked at his name is Victor, or, or in Czech, Vitya. This really does change everything. Uh, the trees we planted, all of a sudden, they become even more important. The riparian area that's been scoring healthy now, that's becoming even more important. And... A lot of the changes that have benefit, benefited the increase in biodiversity and carbon sequestration and pollination, etc., the ecosystem services, I feel it, it's, if for nothing else, we've, as grandparents who are on the, on the tail end of being on the farm, we've been able to do something to leave the land. It, it won't be better than when we moved here because I did a lot of damage, but it's on the way back. And I guess why I've written some stories about the farm, about thoughts about Sunrise Farm from the past, the present and the future is that we want to hand that on to the next owners and tell them about the mistakes we made and how we have become over 36 years native to this place. In other words, there are places, if you overgraze them once, 
you may not get the chance to do it again because it's poor soil there. Uh, there's little things that if you take care of, the rest will take care of itself. So, uh, yeah, well, Anna sends us a, a, a Skype picture or a, or a video of uh, Vitya virtually every day, and uh, every this does change everything. Okay. Yeah. And... Um for those uh, like agriculture still committing quite a few sins and I'm not just talking about this farm I'm talking yeah. about farms yeah. pretty much everywhere <clears throat> from your own experience what would you say to those guys that are committing the sins right now well the best thing I can say is <clears throat> I'll point a finger at him and I'll say don't get too excited because you'll see there's three pointing back at me so I made a lot of mistakes so who am I to judge that you are making mistakes because you know what you are maybe farming 3,000 acres and you've taken out maybe 20 or 30 acres of bush I was only farming maybe five quarters and I took out 40 acres of bush so who was the biggest sinner here yeah. so and I was at a conference speaking in Canmore I think it was a wildlife society or something of Alberta and I gave a presentation, and after there were quite a few questions, and somebody asked the question, what do you think about industrial agriculture? And I started, uh, I started really putting it down, and I answered the questions, and it was over, and a fellow came up. <laughs> this is really entertaining. <laughs> a fellow came up to me after, who was a professor of wetland ecology at the U of A, and he shook my hand and he says, Don, he said, that was a fantastic presentation. And he kind of looked over both shoulders and there was just two of us, eh? And he says, when you started unloading on conventional agriculture, he said, I, w I watched the body language and he said, it just... It, it dampened your message. And you know what? I've tried to remember that every time I go to speak. And uh, I haven't always been perfect, but I'm, I'm trying to be conscious that, you know, if, if through, de through uh, uh, weather issues or markets, if you get into a, a bad situation and you have bills to pay and the cattle are paying the bills and you overgraze and pretty soon your pasture starts to go backwards, it's very easy to slip back, to slip into a situation where you're going to be to the point that you are losing ecosystem services. You are losing carbon sequestration. And so uh, I can't, uh, I can't really, I don't agree with a lot of things that are happening with big ag because we are losing a lot of habitat. And if somebody were to ask me, if you have one message for big agriculture, it would be that we really have to start figuring out who's supplying the ecosystem services. And I believe that if you meet with cows and fish, if you meet with the ecologists, if you meet with the agroforestry people, if you meet with the ranch, man ranch management, range management people, if you meet with uh, climate change people, you will find out that you need those pieces of the ecosystem to be healthy, not just there, but to be healthy. And so that's my message. And some falls on deaf ears. And if there's 50 people there and one emails me or phones me within a year and says, Don, I got your take home message. You know what? We're planting trees now. We fenced off our creek. And uh, that's success for us. Okay. Yeah. And do you, like, you know, you've been on 
the world a little bit longer than me, and I'm just curious if there's... So we got a lot of stuff to face right now. So we got climate change, biodiversity is in decline, <coughs> ecosystem services are in je jeopardy, food insecurity, inequality, stuff like that. Are there any lessons in our past that could guide us in the future? Yes. <clears throat> and I have to be careful with this, but I won't be. <laughs> um, Sounds like your style. <laughs> well, <clears throat> people have come here and they say, we admire what you're doing, we admire your work ethic, we admire your land ethic, but come on, we can't go back to the 50s. Mm. And by the way, this is a business and it's no longer a way of life like you grew up in the 50s and 60s. It's business. And so I, it's taken me a while to figure out how to answer that without putting people down. And so I have a story to tell. And it's about a multicultural school somewhere around the world. Can't remember where it is. And it's private. And there's people, there's students there from all cultures. And there's a, a teacher who teaches religious classes and teaches about all the religious religions around the world that actually some of those students come from those religions. So try, trying to teach them that we're all in this together, even though we have different faiths or whatever. And she's a first-year teacher, and she goes into the uh, <clears throat> lunchroom, and somebody says, how is it going? And she said, I asked these students uh, questions about religion, and she said they just cross their arms and shrug and they won't answer. So this teacher who's been there for years and he's pretty seasoned, he says, I'll tell you what to do. Pulls out his wallet and he said, here's 10 bucks. He says, I'm going to lend this to you. He says, after lunch, when you go into your class, you say, I have a question. And whoever answers it correctly gets the $10 bill. And here's the question. Who is the most talked about popular person that ever lived? She says, okay. Goes into the classroom, asks the question. Nobody answers the question. And she says, oh, by the way, whoever answers the question correctly gets the $10 bill. Well, all of a sudden, the hands all go up. So she uh, sees one young fellow waving his arm. Andrew, he's Scottish. She says, Andrew, who, uh, who would you think this person would be? He says, well, it's got to be St. Andrew. And she says, you know, he was a pretty good guy, but no, it's not him. So, uh, picks a girl this time. Name is Fiona. She's from Ireland. And she says, God, it's got to be St. Patrick. And she says, you know what? You're close too, but you're not right. It's not right. So Levi, little Jewish boy sitting in the front row, waving his arm. She says, Levi, who do you think it is? He says, teacher, Jesus Christ. She says, you're correct. Come up and get your $10. Got it in her hand, holding it out. And he grabs onto it, and he's just ready to pull it out of her hand. And she pulls it back, and she says, How did you know it was Jesus Christ? Well, he said, You know, teacher, it isn't. It's really Moses, but business is business. So he pulled the $10 bill. And you know what? That's a prime example that if, if we don't treat agriculture as a way of life, and it becomes business as business, then... When I get into financial trouble, I will start clearing the trees. I will start grazing the, the, the riparian area. I will start overgrazing my native prairie. And I start losing those ecosystem services, which not only this farm needs, but the entire community needs. And somehow we have to empower, empower the consumer who, is the, who are the people 
that can drive this model and keep the farm going, keep our communities going, keep our schools going, our hospitals going, the churches going, because all those things are disappearing, and they're disappearing very fast. So that's my message. If we're going to treat business as business, the habitat will disappear very quickly. Mm. And Jeff McFarland was here in Alberta in 2008 for two weeks. He helped... Uh, start Landcare Australia, which is basically in Alberta, they would call it a watershed movement. Uh-huh. And what they're doing is they're trying to recover the land. In other words, there's so much bare land that the heat, there's nothing insulating the soil. So now Jeff said, you know what? We will plant plants, trees that are not from this country. Just if they'll grow here, that's how desperate we are. So cows and fish actually had Jeff for a day. And because they'd done a lot of work with us, they said, can we bring Jeff up and spend the day on your farm? So we gave him the tour of the farm, the eco-buffers, the shelter belts, the way we graze, raising our hogs on pasture, chickens, etc. And uh, anyways, after supper, uh, do you want to stay? He says, yeah. So everybody else left and Jeff and I, we stayed up till midnight and we talked about what we're talking about now. And uh, he said, you know, Don, he said, I wish I could take you back to Australia because he says, you seem to have your finger on the pulse. But he said, I'll tell you very frankly that we are very close to being past the tipping point. And he says, right now, we are doing everything we can to get ground cover back. And that was that was eight years ago. And since then, Alberta continues to lose more and more and more of what Australia has already lost. And we are not learning from that history. So... It's a combination of learning what others have learned and putting it into practice. Or I'm finding out that there's a there's part of a culture out there in agriculture that says, Don, don't worry. Technology will save us. And I'm saying appropriate technology is good, but I think we've we've overdone it. And if we as we all know, as technology gets better, it gets more expensive. And right now, China doesn't want our canola. They're not really interested in our pork. They're not really interested in our beef. We don't have a lot of lot of local markets. So what happens when that goes backwards even more? That's not a story I like to go much further on. So uh, the benefit, the, the, the joy that we've had is finding local people. I mean, by local, I'm talking from Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton, Camrose, even around the area who have come to our farm because our way of marketing is show me. In other words, if you email us and say, do you sell chicken? Yes. What's it worth? We tell them, can you go, do you come to Edmonton or Camrose? We do, but you know what? Before you come, we want to have you come and tour the farm and it's free. It takes two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. So some come and they have become loyal customers they have become very good friends we get christmas cards from them uh like it's it's special really special yeah and that's i think if we can build that you know if that pedal gets dropped and we can keep spreading that that's how we're going to get out of the mess we're in so there clear benefits to regenerative agriculture so why do most guys not do it and you're just theorized I suppose you can't speak for everybody it's hard no 
Well, I've actually talked to farmers about it, and they say, well, we're, lo- we're losing a year of production. Okay. So does, does what you're doing now, is it, is it putting enough organic matter back into the soil? Uh, if, in fact, we are going to be getting more moisture, or as much moisture as we're getting, but in shorter periods of time, and you don't have enough litter, or you're, you're, you're monoculture farming, in other words, you have just canola, or just wheat, or just barley, or whatever, do you realize when you get a downpour, like in the old days, we called it a three-day rain, where you got three inches, and it was beautiful. Today, the three-day three rain sometimes comes in three hours, or maybe in less than a day. So all of a sudden, it, it, it goes down the rows between the grain, and we lose it. So regenerative agriculture, we've, we've done some cover cropping, and of course, the way we graze, we're trying to leave more litter, and what we're trying to do is that in the spring, if we get a winter that hasn't had a lot of snow, if we haven't overgrazed our pastures, and especially where we have alfalfa, what happens with alfalfa is the leaves fall off, and people say, look, look, you, you, you've wasted those leaves. They could have put pounds on cattle. But you know what? I ask them, if, you, if you're driving around here in the wintertime, stop in, and I'll show you the snow fence we've installed. So they stop in, and what it is, it's the 6, 8, 10 inches of that stem of alfalfa, and they got their brothers and sisters, and they're all trapping the snow. Same thing with the snowberry, or what a lot of us call buckbrush. Uh, Dylan Biggs told me in the special areas, they don't get much moisture, they don't get much snow. So he said, that buckbrush, he said, any snow we get, it holds on to it, and in the spring when it melts, he said it goes right into the ground. So what a lot of people are spraying their pastures so they can get rid of the buckbrush and get more production, which the spray actually kills the legumes. And once you kill legumes in native prairie, I really haven't heard many success stories of getting it back. So all of a sudden, you've lost one of your tools. And so not good, not good if you've lost your tools. And uh, you gotta, you may have to... I, I don't know how you would rejuvenate your native prairie because if the leggings are gone, they're the, they're the critters that are uh, fixing nitrogen for all those grasses and forbs around. So, yeah, we've, we've increased our organic matter by using cover crops. And they, uh, I've read this in a few places. You increase your water infiltration anywhere from 24,000 to 27,000 gallons per acre. So we actually did some of this on some of our very solid soil where I would challenge you to take even in a wet year, a shovel and get more than four inches without really jumping on the spade to get it into the ground. It's hard as rock. We found our tillage radish. You can go pull a, pull a tillage radish out of there when they're about three feet tall. And some of them are 14 inches, 16 inches deep. So they're penetrating through that crust. So in the spring, I'm thinking, okay, when the snow melts, is it still going to scoot or is it going to go down? Guess what? If the cattle haven't grazed it, the radishes have decayed over winter and they've got those funnels so that water goes in. So you're capturing moisture, that organic matter that's in the soil. It's a win-win-win. So yes, we may have lost a year of production, but we probably did get a, uh, one grazing out of it. And that the cover crops have nitrogen fixtures like hairy vetch, uh, crimson clover. You can put other clovers. So I just think it's a huge benefit. And we only started doing this in 2015. And I mean, one of the things I say way too often is I wish I was 20, 30, 40 years younger because I think these are exciting times for, I call it the Gabe Brown effect. It's the cocktail cover crop thing because you can you can regenerate the soil. And uh, I, I read, I think it was in the Western Producer, probably 
two, three years ago that <clears throat> there's a magnesium deficiency in about 75% of the cow herd in Western Canada. And so some of those uh, cover crop plants, ours, I think we had eight in the, in, the, in the cocktail, and some of those, the roots go down deeper. And so in different zones, I believe you have different minerals. And like copper's down there somewhere too, so they tell me tillage radish, not tillage radish, uh, purple top turnips are good for bringing up copper. So people say, well, it brings up the copper, but what happens? Well, if the cattle are grazing it, the cattle eat the turnip, or the pigs, if they're grazing, eat the turnip, they get the copper. And you know what? If you eat the pig and you eat the cow, you get in the copper. And one common denominator now that they're finding is that people that have a dementia, when they do autopsies, one of the common denominators missing in their brain is copper. So I guess you could put copper on by going to the store, or you can do it by using the roots of the purple top turnip, plus all the benefits come with it. And our, our friend Mark Wanick, the ecologist, has told me so many times that I know I'm never going to forget it, and that is, Don, you cannot only do one thing. In other words, if you plant that turnip, you're not, you're not just getting a turnip. You're probably going to get copper. And the animal that eats it is probably going to get copper. Uh, if you're going to go grain farming, that copper is going to be in, it's brought it up to the surface so the grain can utilize it. So, uh, yeah, whenever I give a talk now, I usually start out and saying, you're going to get bored, but I'm going to tell you a few times during this talk that you can only do one thing. And a lot of the, I don't know if I'm a young producer, but young and new producers that I know, um, they would love to farm the way you farm. They'd love to buy your farm. Unfortunately, they don't have the money for it. Um, but if I ever find one that does, I'll let you know. Um, it's just because like farming in a way that it benefits, you know, the climate or ecosystems. It just, in some ways it doesn't pay right now. So I guess... I don't know if there is a good answer to this, but like, what kind of advice or suggestions would you have for like somebody like me who would love to farm the way you farm, but I still got to pay bills at the end of the day? Well, as you well know, we're working with a cooperative that's Marie and I have our fingers crossed and saying our prayers that this is going to come to fruition and they will be the next owners of the farm and they will work with people like you who has the fire lit. In other words, you have biophilia. Edward O. Wilson, very well-known entomologist, world-renowned. World He's probably in his 90s now. He said that uh, we all have biophilia. And what biophilia is that we are all hardwired to care for nature. And so if us old people can pass that torch of fire onto you so that it lights and fans your biophilia, then you need land. So the cooperative wants to take land off the commodity market and start putting it into the hands of people like yourselves and others. And I, I, Marie and I feel that this farm, because of uh, the water that we have, the gravity feed watering system that we have, that uh, there's 27,000 lineal feet of uh, inch and a half water line and about 100 valves that go to every paddock on the 640 acres. And you could have probably... <clears throat> 10, 15, 20 groups of young people doing permaculture gardens that would grow berries and fruits and have a CSA that they could market to, have a hub and market to maybe cameras and from there maybe to other cities or villages. And I think the opportunities are endless. And if you don't have debt hanging over your head, life is fun. Life is fun. And I, people like Dakota Cohen, who I call the next, the next leaders and the next drivers of the movement that you're in, uh, Dakota 
he could come to this farm and start doing workshops. And uh, it's what I love about Dakota is that he's not how would I say he hasn't gone to university or Nate or anywhere. He's he's gotten a lot of his education from being on the land. He's taken permaculture courses, but the credibility he has is he's. He's, he's, his roots are in the land, on the farm, the family farm. His parents have passed on their gifts, their knowledge. So he's he's the carrier of that. And uh, I have to smile. People come up to me that, that know Dakota and they know me and they say, Don, it's it's good to good to meet you. And we want to thank you for mentoring Dakota. And I say, <clears throat> pardon me. <laughs> I said, he's mentoring me. I have learned more from him. And I believe that we have a we have a section of land, and I said I believe that the future is going to be way less than a quarter section of land, just because the book ten acres is enough. There's an example of I believe a young family can 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 do quite well, but you're going to have to empower the consumer to support you. And one thing when we have a tour at the end of the tour, people say, "Before we leave, is there anything that you'd like to say?" And I says, "I have one thing to say." I said, "The globalization of food that's coming from away." Uh, the corporations are telling us that the cheapest price is the law. And what I want you to do as consumers is break that law and, and support the next generation of young farmers coming along. Because without you breaking that law, that the cheapest price is, for food is the best, I say they're not going to make it. Hmm. How do you actually convince the consumer to pay more? Like we all grew up, like when I think of going grocery shopping with my mom as a kid, but you know, the first thing you did, you picked up the flyer that where the discounts were the discounts. So I don't know. Do you have any tips or suggestions? Cause yeah, we know a fair amount of people that are doing direct marketing and you know, if you pay a premium for that. So if we're as producers engaging the consumer, how do we tell them to pay more when they can easily pay less? Well, that's why we started we had the website built in 2008 and we uh, we put it up and uh, we started getting emails and phone calls and Marie and I had gone to three farmers markets three three weekends in Camrose and it was in the winter time it was the month of November and December and so we were up probably by 4 or 5 in the morning put the deep freeze on the truck or the coolers on the truck, did my chores, drove. We were in Camrose by 8 or 8.30. Farmer's market ended at 2, load everything up, come home, 30 below maybe, you know, thaw the waters that had froze up while we were gone. And I told Marie, I said, I I, I don't have the energy. So I said, we got to find another way. So we, uh, we'd already been inviting people to come for tours. So we felt that show me. In Missouri, you know, they're the show me state. So if you tell them something, they say, okay, show me. So that's kind of been our motto is please, although you've contacted us and you're interested, please, if you have the opportunity, come or, or bring your family or bring your neighbors, uh, whoever, because we want to show you that what we're doing has a price. And the only way that we can convince you to pay a premium is to see what we're doing. And so we, we try to explain what ecosystem services are. We get uh, literature from cows and fish about riparian health, from ducks and limited about wetlands, from uh, cows and fish on the beavers and other organizations who are telling the story about what these ecosystem services are doing. So when people leave, they've kind of, we've built the awareness. Cows and fish is built on the foundation of let's make the farmers aware of what's out there and how they can use it to their benefit. So we're telling people that 
Oh, and another thing they tell us is it's been really good visiting a sustainable farm. And I say, whoa. I said, you think this farm is sustainable? Well, look at all you're doing. It absolutely is. I said, unless the consumer supports us, it ain't going to happen. So I says, for those of you who think we're working too hard, I said, we have to work hard to earn your support, your trust, and your belief that this is going to be good for our kids and our grandkids down the line. And so that's where we've invested a lot of our energy. And uh, I guess myself, I have actually fed off that. And it's encouraged. We've been doing that since 1997. And uh, we're getting uh, Olds College, uh, Lakeland College, University of Alberta, uh, range students, uh, agroforestry students coming to the farm. So uh, we used to think this was maybe happy hour and they were coming to see this is how the, you know, the kind of the fluffy guy is doing it. But now I think with climate change, there's more of a, hey, you know, maybe there's something going on here. And so I'm trying to encourage these people, you know, I'm becoming quite old and maybe you should start getting the Dakota Cohen's. And I know our rancher over by Fort, by Vermilion, uh, his name is Sean uh, McGrath and he writes in the grain news and Sean is uh, very much same kind of thinking. He says, uh, to be sustainable, somebody's got to be supporting us. And him and his wife and family are doing a phenomenal job of how they graze their cattle and they're getting into grass-finished beef. And yeah, they uh, they have to show the consumer that you have to believe in what we're doing because if you don't, you're just going to go and back to... And, and, you know, having said that, many people again have left here and said, if we were going to give you some advice as consumers, we would say, why don't you just raise the beef and take it a little easier? I said, remember BSE? A little bit, but uh, don't, uh, you know, maybe remind us. I said, well, when BSE hit, all of a sudden the beef market went into the tank. So with us, because we were organic, we had never fed animal byproducts. So we were still okay. But let's say we weren't. I said, we still had pastured pork. We still had pastured chickens and turkeys and eggs. So I said, when the beef, if the beef had gone into the tank, we still had that to rely on. And I said, you know what it did for us? It allowed us to keep on looking after the land. In other words, keep on promoting the health of the ecosystem services. So if you become comfortable on the good years and just selling beef and something goes south, like maybe two or three droughts in a row, how are you going to pull yourself through? And if you start overgrazing one year and there's another drought, I said, it doesn't take long before you're wondering, how did I dig this hole deep of a hole? So what you see here, we're doing a lot of work, but I said, your generation, Derek, is... I believe that instead of a mom and pop operation on this land, I can see a minimum of two families and even more. It may be even families that come from the villages or, or from cameras coming here and working on, on, on a garden plot or something. Just because we do have all this water, if it gets dry, we've got a lot of water here. And it's the land has been certified organic since 1997. And the majority of our dugouts are within the watershed of our farm. In other words, they're not influenced by any water running in. So uh, we, we've tried our best to design the farm so it's set up to to be, I hate to use the word sustainable, but resilient. Resilient is the word. And, and again, Edward Wilson says that the more diversity the more species you have in your ecosystem the more resilient you are to droughts and other environmental challenges yeah that's an important lesson there and uh like a few times in this conversation you've talked about like making farms like this smaller uh i i get how like 
yeah, I could probably work 10 acres and do okay. I'm just wondering what are the benefits to the land if farms get smaller and there's more people on the land? Well, it's like anything else. If you have one person doing the marketing, like in this case, like we were for the whole farm, it's, it can be a, a big job. And if, if we would have wanted to work harder at marketing, we probably could have got, we could, we could have got more people like Calgary. We could have sold a lot of food into Calgary. We, we actually had restaurants in Calgary. River Cafe had contacted us and said, you know what? This is, we're looking for people like you to supply us with protein. So I said, how is this going to work? Well, we want fresh chicken the day it was processed. We want meat. So it's been hung for 21 days and it hasn't been froze yet. So I said, we're four hours from Calgary. In order to go to Calgary, we have to sell a minimum of maybe two or three grand worth of protein. And I said, that doesn't work. So if you have more people, like say you've got, let's just use a number. If you've got 10 families, not necessarily living here, but working here on 10 acres each. And they get together and say, okay, let's, maybe let's get together and let's put in a, a cold storage unit for uh, a freezer unit and a cold storage unit for storing vegetables over winter. And let's take turns making the trip to Calgary. Maybe you guys are really good at growing fruits and vegetables and berries. Uh, maybe you're good at doing something else. Maybe, maybe you like raising pastured poultry and you can do that. So you've got people with different gifts and different passions. So I think the worst thing you can have around a table is everybody saying, I want to be the beef person. You need somebody who has different gifts and you pull them in. And that's what, like, it's just like in the ecosystem, you've got all these different parts. They each come with their own gifts to the, to the land. And when you recognize what they are and you back off and say, okay, if I, if I, if I'm really careful here, I won't compromise the rest of the gifts that you have. So that's what we've tried to work really hard at. And, uh, largely we feel we've been relatively successful. So I'm personally, I think that's, that's, uh, that's one of the big deals is to take a piece of land like this and find more families. And I know that I, I've looked into intentional communities and uh, that stuff is, it's, it sounds really good, but sometimes, you know what, we're all individuals and uh, maybe that model doesn't work. So maybe the model is let's start out, doing our own thing, but working together on the storage and the freezer and taking turns with the cube van uh, so that, okay, Marie and I don't get a lot of time away from the farm. But if you work with, if you have partners, you know what? Life can be very good. You can have kids. Maybe uh, maybe you'd have a, a daycare in a building here or something and somebody looks after them. The, you know, somebody takes charge. And I'm not saying the mothers have to. Maybe the dads need to come in and spend time with the kids. And that's, that's a good thing. So, like I've been entrenched in a paradigm that I'm having a lot of fun trying to climb out of and trying to be, have a little bit more vision into what's ahead. And holistic management has taught us that when you look at your land, there are signs and the signs when we finish taking holistic management were, okay, now I know why the land is white with all this yarrow. It's from overgrazing. Now I know why there's sage everywhere because it's from overgrazing. So there are signs in society now that there may be some issues that are going to take us sideways and maybe we have to go back to being smaller. That's just my opinion. Hmm. It's interesting to you about holistic management because I, I never heard of it till I moved out here. Uh, but then when I meet a lot of producers of your age, it's like, I don't know. I feel like it was a game changer when it showed up in Alberta. Like what did it mean when to agriculture here, when holistic management showed up? Well, I'm sure it, uh, 
uh, aroused a lot of conversation <laughs> in the community, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, I mean, I've learned that uh, it really makes sense to be able to laugh at yourself because a lot of other people get a kick out of it, and that's fair. And I've actually come to enjoy some of the rib rib tickling, eh? So that's that's fair. But uh, I think that some of the things that people who might have come by here whoa, the year after we were finished holistic management, which was 1997, and started seeing what we were doing, they thought, well, that won't last for long. And then maybe some of the, when we got into the cover crop thing, we were having tours and uh, I don't know about that. And we started doing grass finished beef and we started getting our protein tested to see if the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio was within that five to one sweet zone. And it was within that zone on all the proteins, the poultry, the pork, and the beef. So all of a sudden, hey, this is actually working. So, uh, you know, when you start telling people that, and let's say that the markets are going to dry up to a certain extent for uh, free trade agreements outside the country, and you have farmers that have been used to taking selling all their cattle into the uh, feedlots, and they say, you know what, feedlots aren't taking animals, and when they are, they're not paying much. Maybe grass-finished beef is the answer, and the health benefits of grass-finished beef, uh, the book's getting bigger all the time. Uh, lady wrote a book on autism, uh, the gut and gut psychology syndrome, had a child born with autism, and through uh, nutrition of using grass-finished beef, bone broth from grass-finished certified organic beef, that child actually walked out of that area of being autistic. So... We do have some health issues that are really starting to crop up. It's gluten intolerance and gut issues. And I'm thinking that there's three things that can really help us out. It's food, food, and food. And I can't really talk much about this without giving credit to the Peter and Mary Lundgaards, Richard and uh, Kathleen Griebels, uh, Colleen and Dylan Biggs, because they've all been preaching this and they are, and I'm older than all of those guys, and they are my heroes. And Richard left us way too early because he, 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 he between him and Peter and Dylan, my gosh, they had so much good advice. And I, I just, uh, I feel so uh, sad that I didn't get to know Richard more because he was a wealth of information and he should still be inducted posthumously into the Agriculture Hall of Fame. Agriculture does get the blame a lot when it comes to climate change. Like some of the stats, yeah. uh, they vary a little bit, but almost like a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions uh, globally are from agriculture. So it's a, it's a, in some cases, it's more than transportation. And so it's kind of mind boggling. Um, I guess can something that's so problematic also solve a huge problem like climate change or help solve? Maybe it doesn't have to do it by itself. Well, Alan Savory, the, the father of holistic management, wrote the book. Uh, he has a 22-minute YouTube on, I think, grasslands will save the planet from climate change. And it's it's definitely worth a, a look or two or three. And I he's he tells a story better than most of us can tell because if you keep grazing your land in a way that it continues to sequester carbon and if the more carbon we store, the less it's going into the atmosphere, the less we're heating up the atmosphere, the better for all of us. And, uh, like I've, I've met people who are, uh, you know, haven't eaten meat for years 
and they said to me, you raise cattle, don't you feel that, well, they don't use the word guilty, but don't you feel that maybe you shouldn't be raising because methane, etc.? And I says, no, I don't. So they said, well, why? I says, well, the best way I can explain it is that let's say that canola goes up from $9 a bushel to $18 a bushel. And a lot of farmers and ranchers have native prairie. And I said, native prairie is in danger. There's not much left. And I said, the ecosystem services are there are phenomenal. And I said, native prairie that's been grazed and managed properly sequesters a lot of carbon. So I said, when we start turning that up, guess where the carbon goes? And the temperature will continue to rise. So let's say that yeah, canola hits $18 a bushel and uh, some native prairie goes up. And instead of a rancher saying, I, I can't afford to pay what the grain guys want to pay for it. So it gets turned upside down. So three, four years later, maybe canola goes into the tank and it's back to $9. What do you think of that? We never, ever thought of that. I said, we have to start thinking about that. And I said, that's the holistic of holistic management. I said, you know what? It took me a long time to get there. But I said, I'm still learning. And I said, there's still lots more to learn. But uh, again, you can only do one thing. Because when you get rid of the native prairie, you lose the carbon. You lose the biodiversity habitat. You lose, uh, I mean, some native pollinators basically have certain flowers that they pollinate on the native prairie. And if, if you destroy that prairie and there's not much more around, I'm not sure what happens to them. But you know what? They do pollinate canola. They do pollinate peat. They do pollinate anything that flowers. So that may work. But if some of the pest herbicides that we're using that they're proving now are systemic so that it's getting into the flower and when the, when the bees pollinate, the bumblebees, uh, there's, it's called a conduction velocity. In other words, there's something goes in their brain that they can't, they can't figure things out so that when it times, when it's time to go back to home or where they live or their chores to do back at the shop, they can't get there. Or if they do, they're useless. So, uh, that's not a good thing. Every third bite of food that we take, and I'm sure most people know this depends on a pollinator. And I said, Start reading the articles out there. I said, it's coming really fast. Uh, they're very concerned again this year about the almond trees down in California. Uh, they're hauling these bees for many, many miles. And I think just the fact they're hauling them is stressful. And I said, if those bees do uh, get to the point where they're disappearing, they're not doing the pollination. And if the native pollinators have lost their habitat, who's going to do the pollination? And I said, I'm not joking. These, this is a serious thing. And I don't find it being taken seriously enough, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the cooperative. Because I think this, uh, like quite often, in, uh, we talk about cooperatives as a, actually a climate solution. Because uh, farmers' cooperatives, I mean by that, because they tend to feed local populations. So you cut the food miles almost in half there because you're not importing stuff from California. Uh, so it reduces emissions. Uh, but in the case of like your cooperative, I'm just, I'm curious, well, what's the dream? What's the vision? What's going on there? Just for people that I know I sat through a meeting, but there's a yeah. bunch of people who haven't. Uh, well, first of all, uh, the group that has been meeting since January invited Marie and I, I think it was in March to, if we want to sit in on their meetings to see where this is going to go. And the cooperative that they had in Strone to buy the abattoir, they couldn't raise enough funds 
So they decided that uh, they were going to dissolve it. And uh, Raj, who's kind of leading the cooperative uh, group from Camrose, he uh, asked Ken Espeter, who uh, was helping with the cooperative to buy the uh, abattoir, and also he was the, the key go-to person for the Battle River Railway cooperative. So Ken's got a lot of experience, and he's... Uh, just get out of his way because he gets her done. And he's very good at what he does. So uh, a lot of people uh, should be taking their hat off because Ken has really helped rural Alberta. So anyways, uh, Ken gave a presentation to, I think there's about 18 people in Camrose in October of last year. And Ken was there and he gave a presentation. And after it was over, he phoned Raj, I think about a week later, and he said, you know what, the group is going to dissolve the cooperative, and if you guys can use it, uh, it, it's ready to go. So they've kind of moved it sideways, and so what the group is doing now, uh, they're proceeding to develop the model, the bylaws have to be changed, uh, board of directors, a whole bunch of little things have to be done, as well as some big things. So we've been meeting, and I guess they appreciate Marie and I being there because this is the place we've become, this is, we've been native to this place for uh, 36 years and we're, we're quite intimate with it. So we're kind of filling in some of the blanks. And the other thing is the majority of the people around that table have been to the farm through spirit of the land. So they, they, they have a pretty good idea what goes on here and they want to see that preserved. So they are people of passion. And Marie and I, we comment after every meeting and we said, you know what? We just can't believe that the, the passion, the knowledge and the wisdom in that group of people. And we just feel blessed again to be a part of just a part of being able to sit down with them and, and help them plan this. So the, the, the big advantage is that if, if when they buy this farm and it, it gets taken off the market so it can never be sold again, uh, if they if they bring in one or two or three farm families, again I can't emphasize enough uh, debt load. When we bought this farm, our debt load was our debt our payment for the first few years was thirteen percent, and it was twenty seven thousand something per year. And we made the payment pretty good the first year. We squeaked the second year, and after that, it got tougher and tougher. We started the operating loan, and I can't emphasize enough that. If you keep doing that, you will become a hunchback because the anvils are very heavy. The debt load is just very, very, very heavy. And it, 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 it plays with your mind and you start to lose your dignity that you can, who you are and that you thought you were going to be successful and, and you're failing. So Marie and I are really keen that this goes through because we want to somehow eradicate that from the purchase of land and the debt load thing so that the next generation that's going to farm is going to be able to take this and succeed. And I've been asked in interviews over the phone at the end of the interview, what do you think is the biggest concern in agriculture in Alberta? And I said, I don't have to think about that. I said, it's getting the next generation of farmers on the land. And, and Dakota has probably told you this. Raj has probably told you this, but there's going to be in the next 15 years, the baby boomers, that's us, eh? a whole bunch of land moving. And so, when Raj and his group get this together and our farm is in their hands, uh, we really believe that they are going to empower others to do likewise and 
you know, we've heard stories of a prairie fire. When it starts, it just goes, eh? And I believe that this is this is a positive prairie fire. In other words, it's not it's not flames that destroy, but it's flames that feed uh, a movement that can be uh, very rewarding, uh, rebuild communities, and allow people to work and feel very good about what they do. Okay. I mean, is it sort of strange sitting there in those meetings and like listening to, I guess they're not really strangers anymore, but they were strangers at one point. So like listen to a group of strangers talk about what they're going to do with your, your home, really. <clears throat> well, I've told them on a few occasions that uh, I personally feel very guilty being there. You know, you've heard, you mentioned guilt earlier, right? <laughs> because th- we're actually so close to this that my opinions Sometimes I say, and I say this sometimes when I have an opinion, I said, remember, you're talking to the previous owners here. We're giving our opinions. And I said, I'm concerned that you shouldn't, you should back off and go home and think about this or maybe talk about this when we're in iron around because we are giving our opinions. And I mean, some of them are valid, but you need to think what's best from your side of it. And uh, you need to talk to the Dakotas of the world and, and other people. So, I think that when they put all that together, I think they can, well, I know that they're going to make some of the, some really good decisions. And, uh, you know, we feel good about it that they, they, that they have invited us. And, um, yeah, I mean, I got to say that sometimes we say some things that, that, that aren't really too radical. We never knew that. And, you know, that makes you think, well, maybe, maybe there's a good, maybe it's good that we are around the table. And I know, uh, Every once in a while, somebody's not there that usually chairs the meeting and say, Don, would you chair it? And I've done that a few times. And I have to say that I feel very uncomfortable doing this because the chair, if they're not careful, can influence. And I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. I I want you people to go home and think, you know what? If we don't think this is a good idea, you, you have to you have to make that decision because Marie and I don't want to influence you that, you know, this is just piece of cake. You can just take this and run with it. But I said. The vision that Raj has shared with all of you and how you are bringing to each meeting and how it seems like that flame that, that in each of you, it's being fanned because we see excitement, we see camaraderie, we, we laugh and, and we cry together. And I said, wow, this is, this is a phenomenal community. And I said, the benefit you have is that the cameras community, you know, so many people that guess what? They are consumers. And I said, they can empower this farm to make a difference and it'll make a difference in this farm. Sure. Good answer. Um, okay, this is my last question. I'm not too sure how to phrase it, but um, when I moved out to Alberta and listened to farmers talk and producers, and they talk about the land. That was a really weird concept to me because I've, I've heard people talk a piece of land that is land, but producers constantly out here are talking about the land, the land, good for the land, bad for the land. What does the land mean to you? Well, I'm probably repeating myself to a certain extent. <clears throat> I haven't mentioned Wendell Berry enough, which I should have, because he's influenced me greatly as well as Wes Jackson. Um, the land. Well, Wendell Berry in the un, his I think his first book called The Unsettling of America, he went to great pains to talk about the Amish. And again, uh, when the Amish, when a salesman comes 
and says, you know what, we've got a piece of equipment here that you may be interested in. So they say, okay, you can come on this day and we will have all the farmers here to listen. So he brings his innovation or she brings her innovation, this piece of equipment, and shows how it works, answers questions, and the elder says, any more questions? Nope. Okay, well, thank you for coming. We will get back to you. So when that person leaves, the elder says, well, probably two questions. How will this affect our community? How will this be good to our community? And so I think that when, when Marie and I moved here, the land was the land. It wasn't part of the community. And the Amish, in their wisdom, have included a chair at the table of the community to sit. And so when they make a, this, when they make a decision, it's about the people, but it's also about the land and the ecosystem services that they provide. And that's something that has fallen off the edge, I believe, of conventional industrial agriculture. And, it, and, and I was part of that. And it, I totally lost it. And actually, Wendell Berry's book, The Unsettled of America, was one of the first books that I read. And all of a sudden, the lights started coming on. And it's made a huge difference. And I, I do quote the Amish quite often because... They, they, they've got it figured out. So the land is more than just, okay, what can I do here? And Wendell Berry, I'll, I'll tell you three things. He says, when you start farming a piece of land, there are three, three questions that you should ask. What is here? What will nature allow us to do here? What will nature help us to do here? And I really missed all those questions because what was here? Well, that lek I told you about, it was here. It didn't mean anything to me. What would uh, what would uh, nature allow me to do here? Well, it would allow me to uh, okay. It allowed me to fence the creek out from the cattle, and we would then, when we did that, all of a sudden we had more biodiversity. The water's getting cleaner, so that if if every producer on this creek started fencing the creek off or giving their livestock minimal. Uh, access to it or pumping water out of it. Can you imagine that the end users, whether it's a town or a village, when it comes to treating their water, all of a sudden, we don't need these expensive chemicals. We can get by because, you know what, there's not a lot of crap in this water. So, and what will nature help us to do here? Well, if you get rid of all the wetlands, you get rid of all the trees, which I was working pretty hard on that, nature's not going to help you because when it's gone, it's gone. So, I'm not sure if I've given you a real good answer, but it's the best I can do. (laughs) This is one of the final chapters from Sunrise Farms Thoughts about the past, present, and future. This one's called Range Health. Native prairie for us has been the crown jewel of the ecosystem. It is critically important because there's so little of it left in Alberta. Some claim we may be down to 4% left, so it is already a collector's item. There's hardly enough evidence to prove in a court of law that we are a prairie people. Once it has been plowed and converted to cropland, it is a long and tedious process to replant it and bring it back to its original state, and it's a tremendous cost. If droughts are the new normal, it will be impossible. Here are some of the many values that native prairie brings to the farm. Excellent winter forage as it retains a fair amount of nutrients in its leaves over winter 
making it good winter forage. Most plants move the nutrients down to the roots to store them for winter until spring. Rough fescue cured as an adaptation to winter grazing because it is dormant in the winter has little effect on the plant. Prairie plants grow underground storage structures and have their growth points slightly below the ground surface. The soil under a prairie is a dense mat of tangled roots, rhizome, bulbs, and root stock. The plants die back every year but are kept alive from year to year by the underground root system. Some roots die each year and decompose, adding lots of organic matter to the soil. That's why the soil of prairies is so fertile. Holistic management taught us to mimic nature, especially in our method of grazing. Years ago, bison were the main grazers on the prairie. They would spend the summers grazing in the south, and the prairie would have the entire spring, summer, and fall the following year to recover. We have used it mainly for wintering our cows and calves for the past 20 years. On a few occasions in the early spring, we have grazed it during April to mid-May. Once our tame pasture has been grazed into the fall, we move the cows and calves onto native prairie in late November. They are grazed through a series of paddocks until there's too much snow to forage through and the weather is too cold, which causes the cows and calves to lose condition. They are then brought back to the farm paddocks and bale graze until spring. On a mild winter, we have grazed until February 22nd and back out again by mid-April. When feed costs are high, only a few months of bale grazing and then back out on the prairie until late May when tame pasture is ready to graze makes for significant profits. By maintaining ample litter on the prairie pasture, bird species such as the western meadowlark and the sprague pipit nest and raise their young. They contribute to the nature economy by targeting terrestrial insects such as grasshoppers for their diet. Prairie plants need a period of rest after being grazed. During this time, the grazed material is replaced and the roots recover. If a plant is constantly grazed, it loses root mass, vigor, and productivity. If allowed to rest, native rangelands will provide habitat for many species of birds, year after year, and abundant of forages for grazing as well. Droughts will slow the growth of native prairie. If it is overgrazed, invasive species will move in, in which makes it even more critical to refrain from overgrazing. After completing the holistic management course in 1996, we walked our pastures and it soon became evident that all of them were overgrazed. We rested some of them for a year and a few for two years. In the spring of 2000, the meadowlarks returned because we had built up litter for them to nest. It was an 11-year absence. Litter is so important. Rainfall is becoming increasingly delivered in large amounts in shorter periods of time. Ample litter buildup will slow the runoff and soak into the land benefiting the pasture. 
Native pollinators such as bumblebees, butterflies, beetles, moss, wasps, bats, and hummingbirds pollinate the various native flowers in the prairie. Neighboring grain farmers, as a result of this pollinator habitat on our farm, also reap the benefits from native pollinators that pollinate their crops as well. Without native pollinators, we would lose one-third of our diet and nearly all of our high-nutrient food, most terrestrial ecosystems would collapse, important plant species that provide the raw materials for medicines would die out, the biosphere would stop filtering air and fresh water for us and wildlife, 90% of native prairie flowering plants would cease to exist. There are 323 species of wild bees in Alberta, with about 28 species of bumblebees, although only about 10 to 12 in a given area. Some bees are specialists, but a lot are generalists too, which means they visit different flowers when they bloom. For some native flowers, they can be very dependent on their specialist bees. The specialist bees tend to emerge from their nest in the summer for a very short time. We have never allowed honeybee hives to be placed on our farm. Perhaps this was a gut reaction to something we did not even know about. There has been an abundance of information about the peril of honeybees since the first signs of die-off from colony collapse disorder in 2006. However, there was very little information on native pollinators such as bumblebees, butterflies, moss, beetles, and wasps. Recent research has been done on the effects of honeybees being released into areas where native pollinators live. These reports have proven that many honeybees do have an adverse effect on native bumblebees and can spread disease to them. Recommendations are that honeybee hives be kept at a minimum. These research papers have proven that honeybees do have an adverse effect on native bumblebees and can spread disease to them. Recommendations are that honeybee hives be kept to a minimum. Studies regarding the effects of drought on native pasture are revealing that diverse plant communities are more resistant to and recover more fully from major droughts. Such findings raise concerns about resilience and maintenance of productivity on prairie lands that have been converted to less diverse cropland and tame pasture. With climate change becoming increasingly important, Native grasslands play an important role in regulating the climate if grazed sustainably as they store large amounts of carbon per acre. When cattle prices are low and grain prices are high, landowners have a tendency to plow down their native prairie which, as we've pointed out, has a significant negative effect on biodiversity, carbon sequestration, etc. Stored carbon gets released into the atmosphere thus increasing carbon emissions. At the time of this writing, there is increasing research on carbon sequestration on pasture land and the possibility of farmers and ranchers being paid for the benefits that provides to mitigating climate change. This has the potential to make farming more profitable. 
West Jackson of the Land Institute in Kansas has taught us most of what we have come to know about Native Prairie. Here are some of our thoughts. The buildup of litter plays an important role. Vigorous ground cover decreases moisture evaporation, runoff, and erosion. Plant cover creates local environment, a microclimate, that moderates extreme conditions. For example, vegetation cover slows and holds precipitation, reducing soil erosion that could result from a heavy downpour and allowing more moisture to soak into the soil over a greater amount of time rather than run off. Vegetation cover also moderates extremes of heat and cold by insulating the soil surface and roots and bases of plants. Once again, we wonder if climate change becomes a more serious concern, will farmers with healthy native prairie be paid for the carbon that their land is sequestering? This is another reason why we handle the grazing management with such care. Big thank you again to Marie and Don Rizika for sharing their story. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based project empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. We are proud to be a project of the Stetler Learning Centre in East Central Alberta. And when we're not doing the podcast, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions runs workshops, farm field days, webinars and we have our very own solar lab assisting communities and rural alberta develop their own community-owned solar projects more information about us and what we do can be found on the website so just go to www.rr2 that is a two as in a numeric two cs.ca the rural roots to climate solutions team is brenda barrett angie o'connor marie galanka evelyn tanaka and myself derek Leahy. Dana Penrice, Kimberly Cornish, and Mark Fox sit on the advisory committee. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. This episode was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media. Parts of this episode were recorded at the Maker House Studio in Red Deer, which is on Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 lands in the home of the Métis of Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.